really fun. Uh, no pop-ups, so some of you might be out. I don't know. But uh, there, it's this book called How to Talk About Jesus Without Being That Guy uh, by Sam Chan. And um, it's, I think, going to be a really, really helpful tool for us as we consider how do we connect with people who we don't know and share the gospel with them. Um, and so I was reading it a couple of weeks ago, and one of the chapters is, is literally called, it's super easy, it's not a hard concept, and, but it's still worth reading, go to their things and they'll come to your things. And so I was uh, sitting at home, this was the Saturday before, uh, well actually I was out, I wasn't home, but this was the Saturday before uh, Halloween, so like a little over a week ago, and my neighbor across the street, who I've been thinking about and praying for, uh, she comes over and she knocks on the door and she invites Bradley to her kid's uh, Halloween party that night. And I, I, I didn't have time to go, um, or really a desire to go at that point in that day, but I was like, you know what? Go to their things, and they'll come to your things. And so I went and uh, just hung out with Bradley while we were at this party, and I got to know uh, a neighbor, and uh, I, I'd, I'd met some of the people in this house, but now I'd met everybody in this house. And then uh, later in the week, she, she was leaving, we were leaving, and we just talked for a bit. And um, So now there's names and relationships built, and it just comes, becomes a lot easier. So I would highly encourage you to, to get a copy of, of that short and easy little book to read called uh, How to Talk About Jesus Without Being That Guy. Really, really helpful resource. We're going to continue to share some stories like that, but uh, let's, uh, let's just pray for um, us as a church and for uh, the junkies and their, um, just their opportunities coming out of that and, and, uh, and our time in the Word today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for the mission that you have put us on, even though it sometimes feels scary to, uh, to go and make disciples and to tell people about you and to share the greatness of what you have done. Lord, would you help us to understand that, um, that there are some really uh, easy ways to connect with people, to get to know people, some simple ways. And Would you help us to take advantage of those and to be hospitable and to open our homes and our lives, maybe even just our front yards, to be able to spend time with people and get to know them and share of uh, what you have done with us uh, eventually, Lord, over time as, as relationships allow. Lord, we pray for uh, just Steve and Kristen and the, the family as they're now a little better connected in their neighborhood. Would you continue to grow relationships there and uh, help them to be able to be available and to care for the people in their neighborhood? Uh, Lord, maybe we, we think especially of those who are dealing with some, some medical issues that, that came out uh, or was made known as part of this block party, would you, uh, would you just give them a unique opportunity to, uh, to help them, to care for them, to, uh, to be available to them, and to pray with and for them, Lord, for, uh, for their good. Father, we want to pray for um, our ministry at uh, Whitman uh, InterVarsity, Lord, that we, that we support. Uh, Father, we, uh, we thank you for the seniors who have agreed to host uh, groups this fall and who are stepping out uh, in that way, Lord. We pray also for Stephanie, who as a volunteer is working there at Whitman and coaching and mentoring student leaders with, uh, with InterVarsity. And Lord, as there's, um, Lord, would you help us as a church to, to consider uh, how we might, not, not necessarily in organized ways, but just as individuals better connect. Lord, we know that there are ways through uh, InterVarsity and various other programs that we've talked about, Lord, but but here we are praying that somebody would come and lead this ministry to a school that's right here uh, in our own city that we could care for, that we could reach out to, that we could be hospitable and open our homes and our lives to students who probably uh, would just enjoy a home-cooked meal and, and a time um, with a family. Lord, would you, would you let us not be content with simply um, finding somebody who might move here and minister on that campus and supporting them financially, but... but all the while, just stay, while we stay disconnected from them, Lord, would you give us a, a growing passion and compassion for, uh, for your glory and for the salvation of the students there? Lord, as we come also now to your word, we pray that you would uh, just open our minds to understand incredibly difficult things, at least to the degree that we are able to understand them. Would you help us to be uh, comfortable and, and even joyful over the fact that not all of what we we know about you, can we know fully? We'll never be able to wrap our minds completely around you. And Lord, may we come to the place where we understand that that is a wonderful and glorious thing. And so Lord, as we come now to your word to look at the Trinity, this incredibly um, uh, simple yet uh, 
just ununderstandable concept. Would you give us wisdom to understand what we can, what, what you have revealed yourself to be, to, to us to be true about who you are, and then would you help us to respond rightly, and may it all be for your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. Before we look at our passage today, I just want to remind you that these uh, are out available at the Welcome Center uh, desk out there. Uh, these are just uh, kind of cards to help you pray for and think about some ways to connect with neighbors like a block party. If you want to do a block party, believe it or not, Trinity has a block party kit. We've got the canopy, we've got the coolers, we've got some lawn games and everything that you can just sign up for, check out, come pick up, uh, connect with your neighbors right in your own front yard. All they provided was some cookies and some lemonade. People brought their own chairs. And uh, Kristen told us first service that of like the 20 or so houses that they invited, 11 of the households showed up to connect with other neighbors. So uh, pretty incredible opportunity, and I would encourage us all to be a part of that. But there's some blanks up here. You can write the names of people that you want to connect with. Maybe they're neighbors, maybe they're friends or, or coworkers um, that, that you just want to start praying for, and you can pray for them. And then there's some touch points on the bottom here. This is not a checklist. You can't just jump through the hoops. Relationships aren't that... Uh, regimented per se, but um, it, it helps us to understand maybe how to move. Like I got a neighbor who's a stranger. How can I uh, take some proactive steps to, to, to becoming friends with those strangers? And then ultimately, how can I help them become family in Christ? And so don't, these are going to be out there for quite a while. We're working on some ways and systems with which to, uh, to measure how we're doing uh, at this, and you'll see some of that coming out pretty quickly. Uh, I'm going to sit down. Uh, my, my foot is not doing very well these days, and I'm trying to get some insurance stuff worked out. I felt, I told the first service, I feel a little bit like David Platt. If any of you guys have ever watched David Platt preach, he's, he always sits at a stool and he preaches like this, you know, and he looks like this little short guy behind a pulpit. So I'm going to feel a little uh, David Plattish today, but, uh, but that's what I got to do. I come to today's message with a pretty great deal of fear and trembling. Because the task before me, as we continue to understand on these first Sundays of the month where we participate in communion, the, these attributes of God, these characteristics of what he's like, we, we find ourselves today talking about the Trinity. And the reason this is such a fearful thing to me is because it's something that we cannot, and, and, and at least in this life, I don't know about the next, probably not then either, that we'll never fully understand. It's not that we can't know that it's true. Just wrapping our minds around exactly how it works in the person of God is just something that is beyond us. The Trinity, I'm going to define this way, that God has, and the next word is very important, God has eternally existed in three persons, though he is only one God. The reason this begins to be so difficult for us is because every member, every person of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, none of them contain portions of what it means to be God, and then the sum of them is who God is. Everything about what it means to be God is fully and completely present in each of the three persons of the Trinity. And yet, they are only one God. They are of the same substance, of the same power, of the same glory, everything. Now we must understand that it is not contradictory to say that there are three persons and yet one God. It would be contradictory to say that in God there are three persons and yet only one person. That's not what we're claiming. This is not a contradiction, it's a paradox. A, a paradox that we will never fully understand, that we can't completely wrap our minds around. That God has eternally existed as three persons, yet one God. I was in a college class and we were talking about the Trinity when I was going to Bible college. And I made the mistake of saying to my professor that the Trinity could not be explained philosophically. 
Now, the point I was trying to make, I think, is still true, and that is that we cannot fully comprehend what it means that God has eternally existed as a trinity of persons, though he is only one God. However, I didn't say we can't wrap our minds around that. I said you cannot explain it philosophically. And he said, yes, you can. And I said, okay, go ahead. What what came next, I didn't expect the simplicity of. He said the Trinity can be explained philosophically simply by saying three who's, one what. That's exactly what we're talking about. There is one God. One what. But he has eternally existed in three persons. Many images have been presented to us to try and explain that, and they all fall short, whether it's from the states of water to the parts of an egg to pies to people. None of these hold true. I mean, they might contain elements that are true, but they're not all necessarily true inherently. I said in the first service that there's, you know, water does not exist as both a solid and a gas and a liquid at one point. And, and I was sent a link to the triple state of water, which I understand the triple state of water. If you know the triple state of water, you'll know what I'm talking about. But water does not exist as a single molecule of water in three states simultaneously. But this might be a helpful analogy because in understanding water, we understand that whether it's a solid or a liquid, or a gas, it's made of the identical substance. The analogy of an egg might be helpful in some ways, but also falls short. If I were to bring an egg and say, how many, God, or how many eggs do I have here? You would say one. And if I cracked it and separated the white from the yolk so that I had the shell and the white and the yolk, and I said, how many eggs do I have? You would still say, I had one egg that existed in three parts. Now, this is helpful because at all points in time, the egg is unified in purpose. There is never a council of an egg where an egg decides whether today it's going to make a chicken or a goose or a duck. Even though there are three parts, they all serve the same purpose. They are working towards the same end and unified in those goals. And that's helpful. But each part is not of the identical substance. Each part has a different substance. Maybe some of the ones that fall short the most is that of, uh, some people have said, well, it's, uh, God is a little bit like me in that simultaneously I am a husband and a father and a son. This would present to us, this would be an affirmation of what historically has been called heresy, and that is the, the, the doctrine of modalism. What is modalism and why do I bring it up? Because um, it's, it's a doctrine that is becoming more and more acceptable today. Uh, you, if you've ever listened to Christian radio in Walla Walla, you have listened to modalists sing. And if you go to any Christian bookstore, you can typically find the books of modalists on the shelf. What is a modalist? A modalist does not believe that there is three persons in one God. No, the modalist believes that there is one person as one, in one God who interacts with his creation in different ways at different times. So sometimes God interacts with us as Father, sometimes as Son, and sometimes as Spirit. And we'll see here shortly that if we are to, if we're to reduce God in that way, we completely undo the doctrine of redemption. That is how God has saved us. And so that might be the worst of the analogies. There are some of these, however, that might point to something that is true, but all of them fall short. And all of them fall short because, because the, the doctrine of the Trinity, the reality of who God is, is just something that is incomprehensible to us. We may be able to explain it philosophically. We may be able to, to say that God has eternally existed in this way. But we'll never completely wrap our mind around it. And I have come to believe that that is good news. And let me tell you why. I was walking through the grocery store one day with my oldest daughter, Allie. She was probably maybe seven or eight years old at the time. And we were having a a conversation in the freezer aisle uh, at a Safeway in Tucson. 
about the Trinity and about how God has existed as three persons and one God. And she's asking me all these questions and wrestling with it and trying to wrap her mind around it. And, and eventually she just said, Dad, I just, I just don't understand. And I said, I don't either. I don't really understand all this either. And I said, and I think this is good news. Do you know why? And I got to be honest and say, I did not expect her to have an answer. But not only did she have the answer, she gave me the answer in probably better words than I could have explained it to her. She says, well, Dad, if, if I could understand this about God, it would mean that he was like me. You know, in Genesis 1 and 2, we're told that God has, God created us in his image. And as the saying goes, ever since the fall in Genesis 3, we've been returning the favor. But the reality is, God is not made in our image. He is not made like us. We are made in ways to be like him. But the, the image is never as good as the reality if you've ever seen a picture of somebody, uh, whether that be online or an actual photograph, simply knowing some things about a person, who they are and, and what they look like, does not mean you know that person. The image of a person can never help you to fully understand who that person is. And likewise, while, while we are made in the image of God and while we reflect things that are true about God, we are not identically like God. We are not completely like Him. And so uh, anytime we look at the world around us and, and we try and, and make you know, complete sense of who God is by it, we've got the order backwards. He's not made in the image of us and the world we live in know quite the opposite is true. We are made in his image. And so the, the wonderful truth about the incomprehensibility of God, uh, about the fact that we cannot comprehend who he is, is that he is so far above us and better than us that we'll never fully be able to wrap our minds around him. But let's consider just a few passages, both from the Old and New Testaments, that show this to be true about God, and then consider some implications or applications. First, let's consider that God is presented to us in his word as one. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6, starting in verse 4, is what we call the Shema. Uh, Israel had called it the Shema, and they recited it daily. And, and the Shema, the reason it's called the Shema is because that is the Hebrew word for hear, and that's how this passage starts. But in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, we are told, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Not many. Not a panoply of gods, not a pantheon of gods, not a multiplicity of gods. He is one. And very similarly in Galatians 3.20, now I'm going to say Galatians 3.20 is a difficult passage, but the difficulty of uh, the passage has to do with the word intermediary and what, it, what Paul is telling us when he says that God put the law into place through an intermediary. But while that might be a, a difficult concept, uh, as Paul talks about the giving of the law in Galatians 3.20, there is something that is very, very clear in Galatians 3.20. And so as Paul talks about God giving the law, he says this. Now an intermediary implies more than one. And, and, and so whatever it means that God gave us the law through an intermediary, Paul says, hey, look, this implies that there is more than one. But lest we think there is more than one God, Paul says, but God is one. Now, the, I, I don't fully know that I have my mind wrapped around what Paul is saying when he says that the law is given through an intermediary. But Paul seems to understand, by whatever he means, that the implication is that we can, could conclude that there is more than one God, and Paul says you may not do that. You may not conclude that there is more than one God because God is one. And so we see clearly from these and other passages uh, in the Old and New Testaments that there is only one God. But we can also see the Trinity at work. 
In Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, when it comes time to make people, God says, not let me make man in my image, but he says, and we've already been introduced in Genesis 1.1, to the Father and the Spirit, he says, then God said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness. Now the events that transpire in Genesis 1 and 2 following that is pretty important for us because what God does is he says let us make man or mankind in our image after our likeness and he creates one man. And then for the first time says it is not good. And what does he specifically say? Is that it, it is not good for man to be alone. And so he creates a woman. Described in Genesis as a helper, lest you think that's a derogatory term. God calls himself the helper of Israel over and over and over. It's not in any way a derogatory term. But it is not until there is a man and a woman that God says it is very good. It is ma'od good. It is exceedingly good. Notice he doesn't make a town or a block or even a church. He creates a family. And then he says, this reflects us. In what way does this reflect us? Well, I, I think the home is fundamentally designed to be a picture of who God is. I'm going to use some terms that aren't uh, very well received in our culture today, but I think we're going to have to rethink them. Because let me ask you this question. Is there anything about Jesus that is not glorious? Of course, I think we would all say, of course not. Everything about Jesus is glorious. And yet... What we see in 1 Corinthians, as well as other passages, is that the Son submits himself to the Father. And there's this perfect, unified love relationship between the Father and the Son, where there is both in the Trinity, though they are equal in character and power and glory and might and substance and every other way, uh, the Father, who is often called the Godhead, who exercises authority over the Son, who submits to the Father. And if we think, if we mistakenly think that submission properly applied isn't glorious, then we need a better idea of what submission is. But God creates design within this very household to, to reflect his character when he creates a man who is to lovingly lead and protect and guard and care for and nourish and cherish his wife and a wife who submits to her husband. And proceeding from the father and the son is the spirit and proceeding from a husband and a wife is children. And so when God says, let us make man in our image, and he structures the home and designs a family in a specific way, it is to put his triune character on display. It is for this reason that a man shall leave his father and mother and cling to his wife. Uh, this is my second service bonus material today, but, but I think sometimes we have the idea of what leadership and submission uh, in the home and in the church means a little wrong. We tend to think more in terms of exacting and domineering ways rather than loving and leading and cherishing ways. But I was reading the book of Jeremiah earlier this week, and, um, and you know, Babylon, uh, Babylon is about to come in and take Israel captive, and God is giving Jeremiah the, these prophecies to warn the nation of Israel, really Judah, uh, about, um, about this impending captivity that's coming. And he tells Jeremiah, he says, get yourself dressed, get ready, be prepared not to mourn because I'm going to take the delight of your eyes from you. 
I'm going to take your favorite thing, the thing that you are most pleased and excited about from you in the world. It would be really easy to think, well, Babylon's coming, Jerusalem's going to be destroyed, Uh, Jeremiah loves Israel, he loves Jerusalem, he loves the temple, he loves God, that's what's going to be taken from him. No, the next day his wife dies. His wife was the delight of his eyes. Oh, we need better pictures of what leadership and submission mean. We need better pictures of what love and leadership and nourishing and cherishing really actually look like. So lest I use the word submit and and what comes to your mind is domineering and exacting images, that is not the picture presented to us in God's Word. But this delight and joy that exists between God the Father and God the Son as the Spirit proceeds from them uh, is is to be reflected in a marriage as a husband loves and leads and delights in his wife and a wife delights and submits to her husband and children proceed from the two of them. Similarly, in the New Testament, we see in Luke chapter 3, this is the the baptism of Jesus. And And Luke tells us that when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus had also baptized and was praying, the heavens were open. So literally, the sky is somehow open, visibly seen, and out of this This rip in the fabric of the universe comes the Holy Spirit who descends upon Jesus. And it's it's so visible that the description is like a dove. And this should connote images to us of a dove coming in for a landing. Somehow, visibly, the Spirit descends upon the Son. And God says, the Father from heaven, you are my beloved Son. With you, I am well pleased. At the ministry, from the ministry of Jesus that begins here to the death of Jesus, we see the triune God is at work. This is why modalism is so dangerous. Because if we reduce God to one God as one person who just interacts in different ways at different times with people in creation, we're left with some really complicated converse, or questions. Who is it who speaks from heaven? as God the Son is baptized? Who is it that descends out of heaven and indwells the Son at His baptism? And as He even goes to the cross to die in our place, to pay for the consequences of our sin, whose wrath is poured out upon Him? To whom does He pray when He is on the cross? And into whose hands does he commit his spirit? We end up with all kinds of problems when it comes to our redemption. If we reduce God down from a trinity to one person as one God who just interacts in different ways with his people. He is three persons in one God. Three who's. One what? 2 Corinthians 13, 14 is a benediction as Paul ends that book and he says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Spirit be with you all. I don't know that I can do much more as we, uh, I mean, this is a simple look into Scripture. There's much more uh, Scriptures we could look into, but I'm never going to be able to help you or even myself fully wrap our minds around this concept. But the reality is that God has eternally existed as three persons in one God. What are the implications and applications for us of this truth? Well, I'd like to share three with you today. The first is the priority of relationships. The priority of relationships. God is a relational God. One of the things we must never do never ever do, is is have this image in our mind of a God who was eternally lonely and therefore created people. God didn't sit up in heaven and go, I am just so lonely that I'm going to make some friends. 
And, and now that I've made friends, and they've sinned, and they've wrecked the plan, and now they're my enemies, I've got to hatch a new plan to fix it, because I'm so lonely that I can't imagine heaven without you. This is no picture of the biblical God. Next month, we're going to look at a God who is, uh, we're going to use the term aseity. God's aseity is the fact that he is entirely and completely self-sufficient. He is dependent upon no one for anything. Everything he needs in terms of relationship, love, affection, power, glory, unity, Joy is built right inside of who he is. He didn't make us because he was eternally lonely. He made us because we are the overflow of his goodness. And so he made us so that that his goodness might be lavished upon us and poured out upon us. But he is a relational God who has eternally existed in relationships and calls us to the same. I'm grateful for the fact that we live in a world today that has pushed a better understanding of what it means to be an introvert. It's okay if you're an introvert. It's okay if you recharge alone. But it's never okay to use your introversion as an exclusion to the relationships for which God made you. I hear people so often say, well, you know, I love God, but people I don't like so much. And to quote Bob Goff, if, if, that's, if that's you, you're going to be sorely disappointed with heaven. Because heaven is going to be filled with people. If you like God, in fact, it's really impossible because 1 John is quite clear that if you don't like people, you don't like God. Because they were, after all, made in his image. Just go home, men, find a picture of your wife, tell her you love her, and then tell her, but the woman in this picture I just can't stand. And see how well that goes over. You cannot state that you love the reality, but hate the image. It doesn't work that way. So, we... First off, we prioritize relationships. The Trinity leads us to understand the importance of relationships. Secondly, and I think this is maybe most profoundly, we see that that one of the implications and even applications for us of the Trinity is prayer. Romans chapter 8, verse 26 is an incredibly misunderstood verse. So often it gets cherry-picked. The Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words, and we say, look, they're speaking in tongues. Now, I'm not here to speak about tongues today. There's plenty of verses in the New Testament on tongues if we want to understand that gift. But I'm saying that Romans 8.26 is not at all about the gift of tongues. See, in Romans 8, this, this idea of groaning, it's the third time that the, the word groanings shows up in uh, Romans chapter 8. And the first time, Paul says that because of the effects of sin, anything bad, any sadness, sorrow, sickness, death, anything hard in life is, uh, is the result of sin, that all of creation groans under the weight of the effects of sin and the curse of God. And so all creation groans under the weight of sin. And then, as he continues his argument in in Romans chapter 8, for the second time, he talks about the church groaning, believers groaning under the effects of sin. That sin is hard. That it's difficult. that That it's this burden on us and the effects of sin, and we groan under the weight of it, looking forward to being released from it. But likewise, verse 26, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. In other words, when the weight of sin is upon you, 
when it is so heavy, whether it's your sin or somebody else's, or maybe it's just the general effects of sin, when you are so heavy laden with what sin is doing in the world or in your family that you can't even breathe, let alone pray, the Spirit groans too. You're not alone in that. And when we don't even know how to pray, the Spirit Himself intercedes for us. The Spirit prays for us. The question is where? From where? From right within us. That when the ravaging effects of sin are taking its toll on you, the Spirit is in you praying for you. As profound as that is, Hebrews 7.25 says in speaking of Jesus that consequently, because he is an uttermost Savior, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. In other words, because the effects of sin cause this oppressive weight, this groaning weight upon us, the Spirit prays for us from within us. And because we're uttermost sinners, the Son prays for us from in heaven. The Spirit prays for you from within you, and the Son prays for you from the right hand of the Father. Now, if... If God prays, if, if the Son and the Spirit pray to the Father, how much more do we need to pray? How much more do we need to, to come and speak to God? You ever met a name dropper? You know, somebody who you get around them and you just, they, they love to tell you, what famous or influential or powerful person they just spent time with. They just want you to know who they know. Church, we're just name droppers. This is why we pray in Jesus' name. Because what we're, what we're confessing when we pray that is that we don't approach God on our merit our goodness, our worthiness, our holiness, our acceptability, but that we know Christ and we can come, as Hebrews says, boldly before the Father in our time of need because we know Christ. And so every time you pray in Jesus' name, I want you to be reminded of the fact that that is an absolute declaration of our unworthiness to ask anything of God. And yet, yet we get to come before Him boldly in the name of someone else. On the work, merit, authority, glory of someone else. I remember when we first brought Bradley home. He was two years old. We picked him up from his foster family. And uh, we, we would eat dinner around the table every night. Now, as, as a two-year-old, he could not, he said about 10 words, and you couldn't understand any of them. And uh, his, his foster family would put him in a high chair and, and any of the other kids who were in their home, and then put them in front of the TV, and that's where they would eat their dinner. And then after the kids went to bed, the couple would, would eat afterwards. Uh, so when we brought him home, and we all sat around the table and ate together, he was just enthralled. Like, we couldn't get him to eat anything. Even if we gave him the, the stuff he loved the most, he wouldn't eat. Because he just, he was sitting at this table with, with all of these people. And he would just stare at us and smile. And he was so excited to be at this table. And then somebody would say something and we'd laugh. And there'd be this delay, like two or three seconds later, he'd start laughing with this really fake laugh just because he wanted to participate. And then, it just, and then that would make us laugh and we'd laugh more and he'd laugh more. And he was just thrilled to be at the big table. 
Maybe some of you remember when uh, at Thanksgiving you got to graduate from the kids' table to the big table and participate in the conversation. Maybe some of you this year are just now for the first time going to graduate to the big table. I don't know. But we love to join the conversation. The reality is that in prayer, God invites us to join the conversation. That the Spirit prays and the Son prays. And God wants us to pray as well. To join the conversation. God wants to hear from you. And the the profound nature of that should not be lost upon us. It shouldn't be lost upon us because as as you read Psalms, as you read the prophets, one of the, the most fundamental ways that God compares himself to the idols that people serve is that they are mute and he speaks. And so in Genesis 1 and 2, he speaks and things come into existence. He says, let there be light, and light comes tearing out of the darkness. In Matthew 3, the heavens are torn open, and God speaks from heaven about his delight in his Son. In Romans 8, the Spirit of God speaks to God the Father on our behalf. In Hebrews 7, the Son speaks to the Father on our behalf. In Revelation 19, when Christ returns and he destroys all of his enemies who oppose him, he does so simply by speaking. The God who speaks with that kind of power wants to hear from us. Oh, that's profound. He invites us to the table, maybe even this table, to join the conversation, to speak. To that end, we'll gather here tonight for corporate prayer. And I would encourage you to join us. If you you feel like you don't know how to pray, you should come all the more. We won't force you to pray out loud. But if, 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 if you don't know how to pray, man, I wish... I wish early on somebody would have invited me into their prayer life to to let me learn how to pray. Help me learn how to pray. Just come be with people who pray and you'll learn how to pray. And, And get yourself a copy of Arthur Bennett's little book called The Valley of Vision. It's not something he wrote. It's just a collection of Puritan prayers. I keep a copy of it with my Bible and I try every day to open that up and just read one prayer as my own prayer, as my own words, just to think through it and, and pray those words as my own prayer. And, and, it, and maybe there's been no book other than the Bible that has helped uh, to shape and to inform my prayer life more than that little book. When I don't know what to pray, it gives me words. And when I don't even want to pray, sometimes it helps me to be able to pray the words of, of somebody else. And, and, and it's, it's just been great fuel for my prayer life. And so one of the profound implications of the Trinity for us is prayer. That the God who speaks has invited us to join the conversation. And thirdly is unity. It is the Trinity that informs the church's unity. I've been enthralled maybe more than any, with any, more than any other chapter in the Bible with John 17. And John 17 has captivated me because it's Jesus' prayer the night before he dies. It is literally his dying wish. He's had, his, he's had the Last Supper from which we get communion. He's had that meal with his disciples. This would have been on a Thursday night. And, and he has now left the upper room and gone to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. And this is what he prays. And that night as he prays, he prays for you and me. Because he prays for his disciples. And then he says, but it's not only for them that I pray. I pray for all those who will believe on account of their word. And we are still standing here today, sitting here today, uh, reading, believing, instructing ourselves on, uh, on account of them, on account of what God has done through their word. And so the night Jesus dies, 
He's praying for you and for me and for every other believer who would ever believe. And one of the things he prays is this. In verses 22 and 23 of John 17, he says, The glory that you have given me, I have given them, in order that they may be one, even as we are one. His dying prayer for the church is that the church would be unified in the same manner that the Trinity is unified. Now, I'm going to say kind of obviously here, if there is only one God in one person, this prayer makes no sense. But he is praying that the church, a collection of people, may be one in the same way that the Father and the Son are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. And here it is. So that, for the purpose of, with the result that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. In other words, the basis for the church's unity is the Trinity. But the validity of our witness is our unity. We live in a world where it's easy to just you know, the pastor says something you don't like or, or your program isn't going on anymore or somebody offended you and so you just get in your car and you go to the next church. I spoke on the phone with a pastor a couple of weeks ago who, uh, he's been in town for 10 years now and he says, of all the places I've lived and ministered, I've never lived anywhere like Walla Walla where people just move from church to church to church so much. And like as soon as something isn't, doesn't meet my preferences, or, or, or isn't exactly what I want. I'm going to go find somewhere else. But you know what? Eventually that church disappoints you and you have to go somewhere else. And then when that church disappoints you, you have to go somewhere else. And the world is watching. I'm not saying there's never a reason to have more than one church. I'm not saying it's wrong to gather around some of the things we have in common during, uh, in doctrine. But, but as a local assembly called Trinity... The validity of our witness, if we, reach five, if we want to reach 505, the validity of that witness to those 500 families will be our unity. Why in the world would anybody believe in a God who says he can unify us to himself if he can't even unify people? See, the reality is, it is not uniformity that creates unity. Unity is connection of mind and purpose and heart when there is not uniformity. Can you be unified in a church when not everybody in the church looks the same, talks the same, has the same hair color, prefers the same worship styles, votes for the same political party? The reality is, for those of us who have believed in Christ, we have more in common than if all of those things divide us. You have more in common with believers who belong to a different political party than those who are unbelievers and think like you politically. Let's just be honest. As we come up to election day on Tuesday. Both political parties get things wrong. And neither will get you to heaven. Only Jesus can do that. When we believe in him, we have more in common than that which separates us. 
And guys, this is the most unique opportunity maybe any of us have ever seen, the day and the age that we live in. Because we live in a world that says, if you don't look like me, talk like me, think like me, dress like me, love like me, vote like me, think like me, believe like me, then I can't have anything to do with you. And brothers and sisters, may we never be guilty of the sin of bringing that thinking into the body of Christ. We are not free to create division where Christ has brought unity. And unity does not mean uniformity. It means we are united in the purpose of glorifying God and calling sinners to believe. And we lay down our preferences on on the altar and we just let them die. We We don't demand our way when it comes to music style or anything else. Our unity is not based on uniformity or preference or music styles or preaching. Our witness in the world is not going to be because our worship is a certain style or our music is a certain style or our pastor is a certain, you know, has a certain eloquence or our ministries are organized in a certain way or or we have a certain program or method. None of that is going to validate our testimony in the world before before a lost and dying world. It is going to be our unity. I and them and you and me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. And the reality is we've got to understand that just how good this is. I know I'm way over time. I went over time last time. Give me two more seconds. Psalm 133.1 says, Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. I hope we can hear from Psalm 133.1 just how joyful that type of unity is for us. Because here God tells us that unity is good and pleasant. Have you caught the difference? Exercise is good. Ice cream is pleasant. Ice cream isn't so good, even if it's pleasant. And sometimes exercise, though it's good, isn't pleasant. But what God is asking us to do is not die to what is pleasant for the sake of what is good. He is calling us to understand that our unity, our witness to the world, rooted in the nature of God as a trinity, is good and pleasant. Behold, look, see how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Lord, may we understand how good and pleasant it is to dwell in unity. And may we, uh, may we be unified now as we partake in communion around this table as a unifying act. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.